Welcome back to another impactful night of the Impact Education Leadership. This is season seven, and this is episode 161. I'm your host, ID34 Isaiah the Third. Tonight's panelists are Buddy Thornton, Post Social Change Agent Pro. Please say hello to the people, sir. Good evening, everybody, and I am thrilled to be here with my uh, panel mates, and it's going to be an exciting night. Wonderful. And the lovely Miss Nina Taylor, please say hello to the people. Hello, everyone. So happy to be back. All right. I'm excited. Yes, we got a lot to talk about. And John Marion, please say hello to the people. It's great to be here again. This is my third time, and it's an honor and pleasure to be on this international leadership program. And we are so humbled to have you all with us tonight. Tonight's topic is, why must leaders discover themselves first? Throughout history, honorable people have endangered their lives to save others. In most cases, they have forgotten. They have been forgotten, rather. And we have called them those unsung heroes. There are so many stories of how educators and paraprofessionals have changed people's attitudes about life. I'm sure you can share some with us yourselves. These experiences create a canvas to paint the lyrics and tapestry that adolescents need to thrive in this solar system we call life and to live in this contemporary society that we're in today. Influence is what we're talking about here. And influence is power that unconsciously affects our understanding, our actions and decisions. With thoughts residing in our subconscious, these influences are formed from known biases that individuals may choose to conceal for social or political power. Instead, they are fashioned by daily home life, peers, church life, daycares, friends, community, mentors, drama, parents, job loss, bad grades, local crime, law enforcement, financial challenges, and the list goes on and on. These experiences with our environment influence our character traits, influences our perspectives on life, which influences our daily practice during our adolescent development. Tonight, we're going to talk about sacrifice. We're going to talk about battling with that enigma called life. Okay, uh, statistics say that according to the CDC, African Americans have the highest rate of current depression, 12.8%, followed by Hispanics, 11.4%, and whites, 7.9%. More specifically, African Americans' most common mental illness disorder includes major depression, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, suicide, post traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, and depression associated with their upbringing in the American society. Let me go first to John Mary Young. John, Mr. Mary Young, uh, you out of New York, um, NYC. What was your first thought, sir, when you got the topic for the night? I mean, you know, you said all, you said so much, and I mean, I, I think we. Have, I mean, we talk about. When I think about leadership. It's like I, all I can think about is adversity. That's the word that comes to my mind. Is that the only way that people could really guide others is that they've gone through tremendous adversity in their lifetime. You agree with that? That direction? Oh, you're spot on. You're, I mean, you're spot on. And and, and that leadership, I mean, that leadership has to be, I believe, dug up, right? And and that's that discovery right. that we've been talking about. I mean, I, I mean, it's it's not just getting through the adversity, but I, it's like when people talk about pain and suffering. If we don't go through pain and suffering, there's no evolution, right? So it's kind of like you need a revolution to have an evolution. And if we look at the leadership of the planet right now, you could see that it's incredibly divided worldwide. All you see is this people's thirst and quest for freedom. And then you see the other side of the coin is this authoritative, you know, dictatorship mindset and it's like we're, we're all, the world is trying to break an old paradigm and rise to a new level of consciousness 
like we've never seen. So either it will destroy itself to be reborn, or we can shed the old skin and not do it through mass wars. So that's what I've been thinking about a lot lately. We, humanity's got a choice right now that it can make. And I, I think that people, when they watch TV, they feel like they are disempowered, that they can't do anything about it. Leaders can, in communities, conduct themselves in ways in which they wish the world could be that way. For example, people say to me, what do I, John Miriam, what do you do for a living? I said, well, I own a leadership school. What's that? And I said, well, I use martial arts to teach leadership. And I'm teaching empathic and inclusive leadership. Especially when I have a lead teacher that's transgender African-American. That's a model of like a human being who's loved and respected and treated as an equal, who's teaching that as well. So there's a lot in my head when you, when, in the things that you're saying and what is happening on this planet right now. But I feel that it's a very exciting time and no one quite knows how things will transpire with the fear of nuclear war and all these things. And I'm an Air Force veteran, so I know what nuclear bombs can do. And it, it really doesn't take, you don't have to be that smart to know that. But the planet can quickly, people can make choices now better than they've ever made to make a difference in the world that's around them. And they'd be surprised to see that ripple effect that can really shift everything that we're experiencing on the planet to the better of humanity. You know, I love that because a lot of times people talk about celebration. You hear it all the time, especially now, you know, uh, what uh, we call success, especially in our global society, right? And But they don't talk a lot about perseverance, right? Uh, we hear a lot about those controversies, like like war, like, like that terror, right? And it leads to rage. It leads to confusion, right? And and we need, um, you know, I believe we need to, like I said, I think we need to discover who we are, right? In that subconscious, so that we can, we can discover who we are, so that we can lead other, like the young people, like our students, to discover who they are. Right. Um, let me go to Buddy Thornton. Buddy Thornton, process change agent pro, uh, sir. So glad to have you back again. Right. I feel like this is your show because you're you're here so much. You know, we we got your own uh, table. You got your chair with your name on it. Um, this is your home. What was your thoughts when you first heard this topic for the night, sir? Well, I think first of all. Everything in the world and everything in life is cyclical. And what I thought was, let's compare today to eons ago and to not so long ago. Back when Aristotle was teaching Alexander the Great, <clears throat> education was only for the elites and royalty. But Alexander was taught by Aristotle that within that framework, everyone should have a whole education, the whole person. Not just one thing, not just this thing, not just that thing, but physical, mental, psychological, care about other people. Yes, he was a, a member of the royal house, so he was going to be aggressive about wanting to expand his horizons. But within that framework, what's the difference between what Aristotle was teaching and what is being taught today about holistic education? And then let's fast forward to just before the 1900s when Dewey was fully espousing a school and life balance for students that it was extremely important to educate them in the fundamentals but it was also important to ingrain upon them that living within society was just as important as learning or how about Booker T. Washington who was an advocate and worked extremely hard for the HSBC uh, situation early in its uh, infancy, looking for expanded education and upward mobility. Yes, he focused on the minority population, but he also 
as a side rail, he focused on elevating everyone through upward mobility because that's the way he preached and that's the way he believed. And when I tell people, imagine an environment where business is profitable for shareholders and owners, but the common man is suffering. Does that sound like right now? Because I'm going to tell you, it sounds exactly like right now. But guess what? I'm talking about the late 1880s to the early 1920s. So now we fast forward an entire century to 2022. Has anything relatively changed? The educational leaders of today, and I hope that includes me and the people on this podcast, we are still fighting for expanded education and upward mobility for minorities and for all of the people who are being left behind. That's what I thought when you gave me this topic. You know, as thank you for that, both uh, you and Buddy. You know, when I just heard what you both said, the first thought that came to my mind was that eureka moment, that aha moment, right? And it reminded me of what one of my mentors told me, uh, one of my leaders told me. He asked us, I was in one of uh, his audiences when he told us to say imagination, right? And it was about 10,000 of us in the room. And we, we said imagination all together simultaneously. And you can hear the echo throughout the room. And then once the echo stopped, once that delay stopped, he said, what it really is, is a nation of images. And we caught that, that wisdom, we caught it. And I took it a step further, I dare say that. And I said, well, if it's a nation of images, then what do people get when they get you? How do people see your image and what nation does it represent? That is your brand. That is your logo. And so giving self-discovery, I believe, forms our mindsets into building our core values, our values in life and our brand name. Let me go to the lovely Miss Nita Taylor. You you just won some more awards, I heard, through the grapevine. What you been up to currently, and what do you think about this topic? Well, topic is amazing, as always. And, yes, thank you very much. I just returned from Atlanta, actually, uh, about 12 hours ago. And I, I won... Um, major medium market uh, personality host announcer of the year <laughs> at the Sin Awards which is for gospel insane radio. insane insane thank you I just won the exact same award at another um award show in Charlotte in July. So it's just been a crazy, crazy year. Um, just amazing. So I, I can tell you more about that later. But yeah, this is a great topic. And um, I'm happy to hear everyone's insight. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Nina, I, I love... I love y'all all, but Nina has a special uh, part in, in my heart, and she knows that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love um, you too. <laughs> um, okay, let me go. Let me go to uh, John Marion. Let me go to you real quick. Uh, so, leaders need confidence, right? Uh, we talked about investment. Yeah. We talked about building that brand. We talked about building that logo, right? And investing yourselves. So, and in leadership, in leadership, I believe in leadership, investment in oneself is the utmost importance. And so, you know, why are so many young leaders in social, economically deprived environments so limited in those different opportunities and those different options? You know, are they available for them? Are there enough opportunities, resources, 
in their homes, in their learning environments, in their schools, in their communities? And if it is, how do they get access? How do they ask the right questions? Where do they go? Where do they find it? This, These are some of the questions that I hear all the time from young people in those different environments. We want to pull on you tonight. We want you to walk with us. We want to walk with you. We want you to hold our hands as you show us, as you explain to us how to unpack that question. Why are so many young leaders in socioeconomically deprived environments so limited in those opportunities of availability that's out there, that's out there and almost, I would say, not being used? That's the first question for tonight. Well, I tell you, there's there's a whole host of reasons why that happens. I mean, I've been, I've been, I've traveled to 17 cities in as far as um, anti-bullying, just to see what was really going on in the schools and to see why children were struggling. And I'll, you know, reiterate from the other shows what I had developed. The first anti-bullying program mandated one in U.S. history in the whole city of Elizabeth, New Jersey, 28,000 children. Because what I learned with the systems in, in the schools, what they all had in common is that every time a child does something wrong, they've got every measure in place to punish them. You know, they get suspended, expelled, they go to jail. So I said, well, we need to have the opposite. So I created a system that was so simple that it costs the city nothing and it means everything to children. It's called harmony power. So kids are recognized for the good that they're doing in the schools, in the community, and if they don't have ideas of what they can do, they're guided to that. So they're using their artwork, their music, dancing, um, going to senior citizens' homes, helping out, cleaning up the school. They're doing all kinds of things, and they're being acknowledged with a certificate that says Harmony Power with beautiful logo, and it goes in the report card as a permanent record. So first of all, you have to start with the belief system. When children don't believe in themselves, it doesn't matter what's available. They don't care. They won't even go after what's available. There are systems in place where kids can have access and can get the help, but they simply don't have the motivation. That's why having a mandated program where it guides them into believing in themselves and through their passions, that's a big. That's the biggest issue. This is the solution to everything that you've just asked me. This is like the core of it because I'll give an example. They've learned through all these psychology books, if you, when you raise children, if you acknowledge the good that they do, you know, positive reinforcement's going to, it's going to have a much healthier, much more uh, balanced child than if you, every time they do something wrong, you're punishing them. We know that at home, and we're, we're beginning to implement that in the last, like, let's say 20 years, but we've not done it in the schools, like, at all. From the Industrial Revolution, um, these education is the same. So when, you know, if you look at what's going on with anti-Semitism, what Hitler had done is he gathered the, the smartest minds of that time, all the scientists, and said, how could we take away as many lives as we can and as minimal square footage? And that's how they developed the camps. And they, they killed six million Jewish people because everything at that time was mind-centered education. So heart-centered education has to be the core on the forefront. Then you can talk about well, what systems are in place, you know, financial access. I feel like, you know, there, there's plenty of opportunity in this country. You know, it, and just people will not go after those opportunities because they don't have a sense of self-belief. When they have that, they'll utilize that. The other big issue is that we waste, an entire, we waste a ton of money on the way that we're educating because the schools don't focus on life skills education. You learn math, but you don't know how to apply math when you grow up. So it's a lot of wasted money and time. It's, it, there's a lot of waste in the way money is spent in schools. Then the kids take an exam around middle school that destroys a lot of kids because they don't do well in the exam. They, they, their self-esteem is crushed. And I feel like the testing should be all done to see what strengths, what talents the kids have and guide them in that direction and let them take courses that relate to what they actually love to do. 
you're going to have a much more productive and successful child who will end up getting a job. And the other thing, too, is everything's guided so that kids can go to college, right? So the big issue with that is that a lot of jobs that we need plumbers, we need electricians, we need we need workers, we need builders, we need factories in this country. We need we don't have that because it's like, all right, you got to go to college. You have to, you know, uh, you know, be a, you know, work on computers. So they 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 guide kids to things that they're not even good at, but they don't feel that they can do. But they're not opening up the spectrum so that kids can be guided to what they love the most and thrive in those areas so that they can be productive members in society. And then the education itself in the schools is not life skills driven where, you know, how do you apply English? How do you apply math? How do you apply science? How do you apply history to everyday life? How does it relate? So that's that's a major issue. Some of the teachers in schools do that. Like there are teachers that care enough to know to do the right thing, but because the actual core of the curriculum isn't that, You'd you'd be lucky to have that teacher that cares. And the other big issue is that they've taken away a lot of um, music. They've taken away physical education. I look, I, I live and breathe movement. If kids don't move right, they're not going to live right. They're not going to be healthy children. They're not going to have self belief. So it's like they need to be like mandated should be exercising every school. Every morning they should have the kids exercising before they even start the day so they can think clearly. And then the food that they give these children is an atrocity. It's like if you take a child, they don't move their bodies and they're given food that's like poison because it's sugar based. So things that turn to sugar, breads and, and, and pastas and, and just garbage. And if you, if you treat an animal that way, you have somebody who's, and it's like the food they're giving them, they can't think right. They don't breathe right. They don't move right. They're gaining a lot of weight. There's a lot of obesity. There's a lot of diabetes in these schools because they're not, it's not, they're not doing a lot of things the right way. And then there's no reason for that because they're spending all that money on food that's destroying them and on education that's killing them because it doesn't really teach them anything they're going to need later on. There's a whole host of things that need to change. It's a lot of wasted spending and nobody making the right decisions for the children because the system is all, it, it's all controlled by the elite in education. Like there's, there's elite people in Washington that are from the Ivy League universities that are controlling all of the education and they want it exactly where it is and they keep people that are in these communities exactly where they want them and that's what I believe is happening. And that all has to be broken. It has to be like completely redone and revamped. So it's fair and equitable. You know, it's not equal. It's it's unfair. And it it's, needs to change. And I believe in some communities it is changing, but there needs to be a lot more of it. And there's got to be mandates put out there that change it. I can go on and on because it's just uh, I'm very passionate about it. Listen, that's why we brought you on to Palinac because we knew you were passionate. We knew you was going to bring the controversy. That was that was so controversial, what you said. It was so much controversy. I, I like the way you talk, You brought in life skills. I like the way you talked about we need to relate more to our scholars. Uh, but that won't happen without relationship, right? Relationships root word yeah. is relate. If they don't, if they don't get me, if I don't get them, we can't have a relationship because relationship core value is communication, right? Well, the core value is love, and so with our lessons being paced the way they are at that tempo, because like you said, the curriculum that we have to give our students uh, as far as core curriculum is involved, right? It's so much, it's so in-depth that we really are wrestling with time. That's another struggle. So I want to open the panel. I want to open up the panel and talk about this a little bit because we know what the problems are, right? But what is your ideal outcome? What would getting those outcomes do for our communities? What would those outcomes do for this society what would these outcomes do for you? The panel was open. Who wants to take that first? Let me dive in I right because my will be short. Um, first of all, 
In the current environment, the majority of educational leaders are too far above the mainstream education. And they demand that the core be taught. And I hear a lot of talking heads, no uh, big apologies to Nina Taylor, because I know she would never say any of these things on her program. But when I hear them say, I don't want the kids taught anything but the core the core um, curriculum, and I don't. I want the parents and and uh, family to teach kids the human skills, the social skills. And my answer to that is, well, let me see. Research says an average parent only spends 37 minutes a day with their children. How exactly are they going to teach them any kind of social skills in 37 minutes? hundred. That's not right. going to happen. You're right. And the you have to allow for a time and you have to allow a place for children to explore social skills and it's not happening at home because when they get home they spend a little bit of time with their parents then they disappear into their rooms they're on video games or they're the diligent ones are doing their homework but they're not socializing so if they can't develop social skills and they can't develop a way to live in society it's not going to happen you ask how does it affect me as a business owner, when I get somebody who walks through the door and they tell me, oh, I can do the math, I can read, I can do this, and I can do that, but then they treat the other employees like they're garbage, they're not going to remain in my employment. I want the social skills. I want the culture because I want my team to thrive. You know what? I can take someone who has maybe a little less math and English skills and make them into quality, well-rounded culturally fit employees. I have employees from Mongolia. I have employees from the Pacific Rim. I only have one employee. He happens to be from Illinois. We jokingly ask him to show us his green card when he comes to work. So, you know, it's a culture based on what do you bring to the table, not what hard skills are you bringing to the table? Because I can teach that. I can work around that, but I can't work around people who are rude or mean or, or, disruptive to other people and i think that's exactly where we're at that was very well said you know man i think if most schools adopt a program like we do here in my city where the schools are geared towards certain subjects and certain things and it's up to the parents to decide what school is a good fit for their child uh, a couple of years ago, and I mentioned this before, I had uh, a little boy who lived and breathed football. That's all he ever talked about. That's all he wanted to do. He wanted to go to gym class every day. So I suggested to his parents that he, they switch him over to the athletic school where he could get to exercise every day. He could major in football, whatever, you know, however they do it. And he could learn everything he needed to learn about football. And he could be there all the way up until he starts high school. By the time he starts starts high school, he's been on special diets. He's been in exercise programs. He is trained and ready to go into high school football and possibly college football. So that's what that's what we do. If a child needs to come here and be in an environment with only Spanish kids who are learning English, that's the school he needs to be at. If they want to be at a science academy, they're, they're very, very smart. They need to be at one of the gifted schools, you know, and that that seems to be working better for the kids than the way you got to go to the school that's near your house and that's it. That school might not be a good fit for you. I think that is a, a good step in the right direction to getting, you know, them on a path that they want to go in not just like right now, but even later on in their life. And like you said, everybody isn't suited for college. So maybe they need to go to a school that has a program that takes them into a high school program where they can learn a trade. You know, that's that's another option for them. And you're absolutely right. Everybody's not going to walk in the same path. Everybody can't do the same type of testing. Um, They just can't. That's just how it is. And with us knowing that as a society, that needs to change. That needs to change so that, you know, kids are growing up better and getting into the type of programs that are going to be good for their lives as a whole, not just 
what's our curriculum and that's it and you got to learn it and if you don't we're just going to not let you graduate that that doesn't work that's been proven already but uh, may, may i may i say something it excites me to hear that mm-hmm. can i share my thoughts mm-hmm. yes yeah. so when i hear that it, it excites me because you talked about uh, the child that went to play football and, and it got guided that way my youngest son uh, his name is Trevor, and we moved to an area in New Jersey that it's a beautiful town. It's a wealthy town, but I moved to the urban side because I wanted, I grew up in Brooklyn and wanted my kids to have a different experience. Half of it is African-American. So during COVID, my son had nothing to do because kids weren't playing together with COVID. He never played basketball and he just started dribbling. He started watching videos and dribbling outside the house for hours because he couldn't play with anyone. And then once things came back, he went out to play and they wouldn't let him play because there's a little white kid playing with these black kids. And then all of a sudden they let him play and he became the best player in the neighborhood. And now he's being trained by former NBA athletes that are in this neighborhood that love him. And now there was only one school in the United States that um, has all basketball and academic. My son travels two hours a day uh, to and from to go to that school, couldn't be happier. And now he's playing with the top-rated players in the country, and he's only 13, he'll be turning 14. So that that's something that I fully supported and pushed for him to have that, that passion because then he's giving something back to the world, he's giving of himself. And I feel that, um, you know, from hearing from what you're saying is like so amazing to me that you know, in your community that that's happening. And I just wish that was a whole lot more of that. You know, I just happen to be that parent that pushes my kids forward to do that. And even in my school, my leadership school, I push other, I said, tell parents to let their kids go where they want to go and, and they'll thrive. And that has to be the future because what we've had in the past where people tried to follow an exact blueprint it it's just doesn't work. It's very destructive for children, and a lot of it, you know, affects them to the point where they are suicidal, or they commit suicide. I'm glad you said that. Um, I want to add one thing. But but buddy, buddy, before you uh, add that, let me let, let me let yeah, me throw this ahead. out there. Go ahead. Because when he says something that totally pivoted the whole discussion, okay, and you threw in suicide and. My question, because I, I want to open the panel up again, and then, buddy, please, you can go first if you would like. But I want to open up the panel again because now I want to say this. Well, I want to make this statement. A lot of our scholars, a lot of our babies, I'm going to say it like that, okay, because I'm going to be very relational. A lot of our babies, a lot of our our children in those low SES or socially, economically disadvantaged communities, okay, are limited with what they want to be when they grow up, okay? I want to be a world-renowned musician, artist, athlete. I want to be a world-renowned gamer, right? And when I hear this from them, because I talk to them all the time, uh, when I hear this, my question is, okay, why should they care about education? Why should they care about happiness? Why should they care about success? Why should they even care about freedom? So there's a there's a code that needs to be broken. There is a uh, cryptographic mindset that needs to be broken. We got to break the code. How are we going to break this code? Because there is a code there is a standard there is a structure there is a mindset that has been established in our young scholars and our young people especially in those different environments that needs to be brought down the panel is open how are we going to break the code let me add one other thing to that to address what Nina said and to further what she said, and also John, here in Phoenix, which is the fifth largest metropolitan area in the country, 
uh, the trades themselves really pushed really hard to have more people educated in the trades. They are, we're not going to be going to college. Some of these kids looked at college and went, eh, I don't, I'm, I'm struggling in high school. How am I going to go to college? So when the trades pushed the education system to do something, they established a school, and there's several of them here, but one of them is called the East Valley Institute of Technology. And the only thing they teach at those schools besides minimal core values is the trades. If a kid wants to be a welder, they teach him to be a welder. If he wants to be an electrician, they teach him to be an electrician. You know, the community came together and said, you know what? We're lacking in people in these skill areas. And the reason is because you know as well as I do, traditionally for the last however many decades, got to go to college, got to go to college, got to go to college, got to go to college. No, no, you don't. You got to do what you have a passion for. You got to do what you want to do because that's what's going to motivate you to get up out of bed every day and go do it. And so when the community stepped up and said, you know what, let's give these kids who are never going to go to college a different path. It has worked so well that it has improved a lot of the different schools around them because some of the kids who would have failed otherwise have moved into the technology schools. And now the overall pattern on all the schools has been improved just by shuffling the deck. And when you say you've got to break the code, you got to break the code. But the community has to step in, and the community, the parents, and everybody has to get in lockstep and understand that there's no such thing as Dr. Larry Davis always says, no such thing as a standardized child. We don't live in a standardized community. We don't live in a standardized world. We need to stand on our own two feet, and the best thing we can do is honor these children's choices by giving them the opportunity to stand on their own two feet because it works. That's beautifully said. Yes, it is. But, buddy, real yeah, quick, I mean, real, real, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, John. No, you know what's exciting is both of them, you know, uh, both of them have given examples that code's been broken. It just needs to be broken more. But it's not like it's not been done or it's not happening. They're they're just giving examples of how, in their communities, it's happening. So it's a very exciting um, thing to hear that it just needs to happen more and having shows like this spreads that message of what's possible, that it can happen everywhere. There's no excuses because you're just giving examples of how it's happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I just got back from Phoenix, Arizona. That's where Buddy's at. And Buddy, we were driving around where well, you were driving. I was riding, right? And you were showing me all of the construction going on. You were showing me how that society is being built up. Uh, please tell us a little bit more about your city, how what you said, that, that outcome is being shown by the developments in your city and how your city is expanding. Because whenever a civilization expands, that means that they're breaking the code for me. But, buddy, please tell us what's going on out there in your city right now. Well, number one, uh, when I moved here in the late 80s, there was less than a million people here. Now there's over six million. So in 30 years, you've seen a 600% increase in population. Uh, last week, the statistics showed that the city or the, the metropolitan area is 60 thousand housing units behind the need and 10,000 people a month are moving into the Phoenix area. Now, two or 3,000 leave because obviously it's a transient part of the country and it's really hot here during the summer. People who don't go through the summer here don't know what it's like, but technology is coming here. And the trades, because they're so far behind on housing development and, and infrastructure development, the trades are begging for people to come here. When people move from traditional school to the trade schools and then they come out, these kids are coming out to jobs that are paying 25, 30, 35, $40 an hour. They're not being jammed into a situation where they're gonna face minimum wage for the next five, 10 years. It's definitely a growing part of the country, but now, the sad part is it's growing. That means there's got to be other areas that are not growing. I believe it's growing because 
even though the statistics show that Arizona has not the best total overall education system, they've made more positive steps toward making it a community education system. And I think that it's a role model for the rest of the country that they need to understand. Let's start looking at specificity in education instead of core education. Buddy, oh, that was so good. What's the demographics out there? What's the demographics? If you know it, that's going to be awesome. If you don't, don't worry about it. We'll go to something else. But what are the demographics out there as far as the ethnicities? You're looking at about 40 to 45 percent Hispanic. You're looking at between four and six percent black, which means that the whites are hovering around that 50 percent mark. So a majority, yes, but a solid majority, no. When you, I don't like to bring in politics, but when you look at the politics, it has shifted from being a very conservative locked in state to a purple state to where every election is going to be contested and extremely contentious from here until the population continues to grow until the demographics shift even further. Now, national statistics say that the entire country is going to be a minority majority country by 2050, which means there's going to be more minority groups who could become coalitions and they would outnumber the white population across the entire country. And Arizona, somewhat New Mexico, Southern California are already experiencing that. And the upheaval has a lot of positive, it has some negatives, but it has a lot of positives. And I think people need to realize they need to look down here if they want to see what the country's going to be like in 25, 30 years. Incredible, incredible. Let me go to Nina because, buddy, what you said is you gave us so many gems. Listen, this is the time to get into real estate, people. Those that's listening in, listen, you need to come to the United States, <laughs> buy up real estate because it's going to be all high rises in the next, you know, 30 to 50 years from now. It's going to be all high rises. Those, those buildings, that those apartments, even those houses are going to be uh, multi-generational where all the families are moving together and living in that under one roof. Nina Taylor, the lovely Miss Nina Taylor. I, I wanna I wanna go more into what you got going on. Um yeah let, let me just ask you that before I ask you this question. So what you got going on Carolyn? What you been up to? Well, um in addition to the Arizona 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 I think it was only in maybe about 10, the last time we spoke, it's in 14 countries now, uh, one being Johannesburg, South Africa, which I'm very, very excited. And we've also finally gotten into uh, Bermuda and the Virgin Islands. So very excited about that. And I also have launched a television show that's only in about four places at the moment, but uh, hopefully that's going to grow as well. <laughs> and now you, you, now you, I'll be retiring actually. You huh? what? Whoa, rewind. I will be retiring from education. Oh, while I share an education. Okay. Well, that's fine. That's fine, but not from entertainment. Speaking of entertainment, mm -hmm. as far as minorities are concerned, mm -hmm. and I'm about to, I'm gonna get real touchy. I'm going to get a little personal, okay? And I'm probably going to dig a little bit, okay? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the bigger picture or the main stage, shall we say, remains unchanged. In the last 23 years, the U.S. minority population has risen by 10% point seven percent but yet now we're talking about your field entertainment minorities only have been represented on the main stage by an increase of point one percent this is a travesty this is a no-go. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Explain to us 
as a minority woman, what are your concerns? And, and why should people care about what's going on? Would you share that for us? I mean, we need to know, the listening audience is listening. We want to know, what's your thoughts? <laughs> well, I think if you listen to some of the older actors and people in entertainment uh, that have been in the business and seen every change that could possibly happen, like your Cicely Tysons and uh, Sidney Poitier, they, the thing is this. We're not in the entertainment business like we want to be because we're not running it. And that's the truth. We don't own any studios. We don't make movies. We don't have television. You know, Tyler Perry does, but he's one guy. How many people can he hire? You know, how many movies can he make a year? How many TV shows can he have? But we need more people who are, you know, trying to make history like he is. And that's really the reason why. I mean, and Hollywood says that most of us only have like a five-year shelf life. So, and that window is basically like 18 to 25, somewhere in that window. Once you're past that, then you're too old or you're, you're done. You know, basically you're done. Even some of the shows, American Idol, any of those, you can't be over 30 years old to win because society says that you're too old to do anything. This puts a lot of limitations on a lot of people. Uh, my brother woke up one day and decided at the age of 47 that he wants to be an air traffic controller. So he just enrolled in school. Never had any desire to go to school ever in his life until now. You know, <laughs> it's, it's just one of those things. Sometimes we don't know what we want to do that early in our lives so uh, society says you have to be this age and you have to be this and if you don't fit in that mold you're not going to get the work you know we don't have the work because we're not giving the work we have to be the ones getting the work we have to be the ones doing the hiring if we want to get more of that pie that's why we're not getting it it's plain and simple most people when they think about doing things they think about someone who looks like themselves and if 99% of them don't look like you, then you're not going to be the one getting the job. And, and that's that's the bottom line. You know, Cicely Tyson said it best. Uh, I've heard Danny Glover, a lot of them saying, um, there's only a handful of, of us is going to work at a time. And that's it. When they're done with us, they'll pick another handful and that'll be that. And so they're done with them. And that's it. That's how it works. <laughs> Okay, that was so good. I, I want to interject. Just but but one buddy, thing. before you interject, let me throw this out there because this is gonna okay. this is gonna help you send this out the stadium. I believe as mm-hmm. males, as males, as mm-hmm. I'm gonna say because we're in the United States right now. This podcast is in the United States, so I'm gonna say mm-hmm. because the majority uh, in the United States is is whites, right? So as as whites, mm-hmm. what type of empathy? Should we show minorities or should you show minorities as it relates to challenges like this? Because I'm not going to say issues, right? But how can we show empathy to them to help them celebrate themselves and support them and encourage them and be their teammates? I want to open the panel up for that. Go ahead. Well, uh, just so I further what I was going to say, and then I'll dive into that. Uh, she is absolutely correct. Nina is spot on. Uh, pay attention right now to the World Series, which is being played. And we have one black manager and zero American or African-American players on either squad. Yes, there are some dark-skinned Latin players, but there are no black players. Dusty Baker brought that up. And it's the first time since uh, 1970-something that there's zero black players who are uh, Americans uh, on any either of the two squads in the World Series. And there's still, throughout the entire history of baseball, no black owner in Major League Baseball. There's very few black partial owners in any of the other sports. So when you're a player, you're going to go where 
the entertainment value takes you. That's why we see predominantly a large number of blacks in football and basketball because they're treated as celebrities. They're treated as if they are entertainers. Baseball is a very slow sport. It's a very leisurely sport. And the players don't gravitate to it because they're not being rewarded for what they can do. And even when they can do, if they make one minor little mistake because the white management and the white ownership looks at that and says, we can't have that they don't get as many opportunities as the white players. That's straight up honest truth. There's no there's no way to candy coat it. Uh, I wish it was different, but hopefully that is going to be a dynamic that will change over time. Well, I have some thoughts to add to this conversation, which is kind of a twist on it. My grandfather, who married my grandmother when I was very young, and I was on the streets of the city, uh, with my mother, who was a drug addict at the time and homeless, funny. You know what it, that feels like? All the tragedies that happen when you are with a mother who's, you know, doing every drug you can think of. And we were not allowed in our Italian neighborhood. We were in the black community in Coney Island, and it was a whole different experience. So I found myself to actually connect very well as a white kid in the projects. My grandfather was black because he was married my grandma. He's Puerto Rican black. So walking in the 60s hand in hand, it was just uncommon. And, uh, but an incredible, profound experience for me because it kept my mind open. I never understood why, if I was around people that were white, they would make comments about black people. I'm like, what's their problem? my grandfather had an afro and I would touch his hair when I was little. So it's like, that was familiar to me. To me, it was just what it was. But when people don't have that experience, they just don't understand. And then when I look back in my leadership, there was a, uh, one, one of the people in my life that was profound was in the military. And uh, his name was Chief Chambers and he was African-American. And, uh, and there's another person named Benny Ross. These were mentors of mine. And they're the ones, they were, they had the power in the military. They were, had a lot of power. And that was in the 1980s. And they were guided my career. But the, they're a piece of why I'm where I'm at now. So, you know, I think that African-Americans have come really far. We think of 500 years of slavery. It's only been about 50 years in the civil rights movement. and Every industry, most industries have people that are famous or very well known that have risen to the top and blown everyone away. And it, it's incredible how, how much has really occurred. But in the same breath, so far to go, so far to go. You know, that I see. You know, this, we're still having issues of, of violence and you know, just complete nonsense of people having these racial uh, viewpoints. So, but I still am very optimistic about where things are headed and that it will get better as long as these discussions continue to happen and people take action upon these type of discussions. Uh, you know, I totally agree. And I thank everyone for those comments. Nina, were you going to say something? Okay, you know, I thank everyone for those comments. I feel like this no, conversation. No, no, I'm good. Sorry. This conversation is taking off. Go ahead, buddy. Please. Yeah, I, I think you, as you asked a question, I wanted to circle back and answer that question. How can we change the dynamic for the minority child? And how can society honor them and give them at least a piece of the equity that has been missing all this time? Honor the starting line. You know, when a child comes up from virtually nothing and accomplishes getting something, it's a heck of a lot more than a child who started with a head start and doesn't do anything with it. Now, that doesn't characterize all whites and it doesn't characterize all blacks or Hispanics. You know, we have to take each child at their own value. But we have to honor the starting line. If they're walking around with concrete boots on and society is not giving them the opportunity to get ahead, then you have to look backwards and say, okay, where was their starting line? 
And how well did they perform under stress? How far did they climb out of just sheer determination and grit? We have to honor the starting line. Because when I do that, I almost always pivot and I always want to look to honor the kids who came up from the projects, the kids who came up with one parent or maybe both parents in prison. These kids face unbelievable negative dynamics and they succeed nonetheless. Honor the starting line. When you start honoring the starting line across all of society, you're going to see a shift. Kids are going to believe that, yeah, I may have started way behind, but look how much I've done and I'm being respected for it. I'm allowed to have dignity. Give them the dignity that they have earned something. Well said, well said, sir. And let's not forget about, yeah. oh, we're out of time. Before we go, I'm, buddy, I got to ask you a question. But let me make this statement real quick. Now, we are not negating all the hard work that goes. I don't care what race you are. I don't care if you're green. I don't care if you're from Mars. You still got to work your butt off to be successful in life. Okay? Unless you were born into it. You got to work your butt off. Okay? So, let's not forget that. And if you're going to maintain that success, you got to work your butt off. This is not the type of world where you just wake up every day, you're in a dream, and everything comes to you. No. I just wanted to make that point. We talked about so much tonight. We talked about responding to the needs we've talked about how empathy and feelings are so important we talked about mindsets we talked about thinking patterns now I want to take the lead I want to take the lead in this question that I'm about to ask Buddy Thornton Apostle Change Agent Pro because you know I'm going <laughs> to you know I'm going to ask you one of those types of complex questions that you're going to have to regurgitate and break it down Uga Booga style we talked about a lot tonight we talked about those enigmas we talked about rage we talked about confusion we talked about controversy and I think the apex of this conversation is how do we get to celebration how do we get the celebration? How can leaders stay competitive in their fields over the years without sabotaging their competition? We all know that this tactic is an oldie but good one. Some of our most influential, incredible business men employed these strategies. We're talking during the the, the pro uh, the the progressive era with the railroads and the oil companies. My question to you as a positive social change agent pro, how do we elicit co-opetition without competition? That's my question. Well, I have to go right back to what I brought up earlier in the podcast. You know, in the era of Dewey and Booker T, the giants that we stand on their shoulders today, they believed in society. They believed that leaders had to be servant leaders who would uplift everybody, including their competition. If society improves, if everybody improves, a rising tide lifts all ships. You know, the biggest thing that Dewey and Booker T both anchored on was let's be what we can be and anchor on always being what Vygotsky called the more knowledgeable other. There's got to be a more knowledgeable other. There's got to be someone on the horizon or in the room who knows more than you. Let them guide you and let them guide everybody. That's what brought the progressive era to its height. The only reason it fell apart was because of the Great Depression, because of greed, because things got out of control at the top of the heap. Okay? 
we have to understand that you've got to combine servant leadership with situational leadership. And you have to do this through universal positive regard and the four anchors of supporting when possible, delegating when necessary, coaching when you're the MKO, and directing when somebody needs it and is failing temporarily at their task. That's how we get where we're going, and that's always the tenets of co-opetition over competition. On fire. Listen, I see the ball leaving the stadium. Uh, It's sunny. I got my hands over my eyes, so I'm not blinded by the light. What are the takeaways for the night? Who wants to go first? I can go first. Um, my takeaways, I have I have quite a few actually. Uh, is that I know, right? I know, right? Social education is just as important as our pencils, pens, and books. That we have to figure out a way to incorporate that into. I think they call it, what they call it social learning. Uh, we had a brief seminar on that, but. Uh, SEL, social emotional learning, you're right. Yeah, yeah. So I remember a very brief seminar on that last year. They didn't really, it was like just that day. Uh, But we need to take it on ourselves as educators to to do what we can as individuals instead of depending on uh, it to be written into the curriculum. And I know for myself that I can't depend on parents um, 90% of them, I cannot depend on them for anything. So as educators, as as people of faith, we need to take it on ourselves. You know, I think this is going to need to be a part two of this. I, I don't know. What, what do you guys think? We're going to have to do a part two, right? <laughs> That'd be great. I don't think there's much that can be said to improve on what Nina Taylor said it's sad that a teacher in today's education system can even utter the words I can't depend on the parents but in reality one of the biggest problems across the country is the parents don't want the teachers teaching what the parent what the teachers know is important and as a business owner I see what's important I just don't understand why society doesn't recognize what's obvious people have to get along relationships are more important than skill sets if you have no have no relational skills you know social emotional learning skills all the technical skills and all the other skills that you might bring to the table will be meaningless if nobody wants to work with you so wake up america realize that these kids need to learn how to behave and how to love each other before they worry about whether they're going to make a big, huge paycheck. Love it. Take us home, John Marion. You know, just great to hear everybody's points of view and your insights is just so powerful. But I'll tell you, when I think about the parents, I realize that the only way the paradigm changes is whatever the parents are not doing has to be done in the school systems because it's the only way you break the paradigm right because eventually these kids grow up to become parents so we can't depend on the parents to really do much of anything particularly when the economics doesn't even allow them to be parents they're not even home right so if if they have so minimal involvement in their children's lives because they're too busy trying to earn money so they can feed them it falls upon the teachers to figure it out and the system has to change where it's way more life skill driven. It's teaching children how to be empathic, how to connect in a deeper way to themselves and to their peers. To really teach them about love and self-love and what that really means. That that program set really teaches them how to take care of their health and well-being and making that a priority because they're not getting it at home. So that's just the reality. So if they change that, if they make choices to focus on that and allow the teachers to guide 
and they have to train the teachers, obviously, because they don't necessarily have the education themselves. They may know English, but they may not know anything about being fit and healthy. They ought to be models in some way. So there's a lot of work to be done on that level. And I, I learned from this, you know, tonight, I learned that there's a lot of holistic approaches out there that are working, that are happening. They just need to be happening a lot more. I also learned that there, it isn't fair in, in communities that are considered minority. I don't like the word minority, but because you take one word out, it's minor. It's like saying less than. I don't know who came up with that name, but I don't like it. But in communities where they're, they're more challenged, because they don't have the funding, or it's not as safe, that needs to become more fair. There needs, there needs to be more opportunity for those children that they have a better start. You know, because environment does impact the outcome of that child. And to say, well, they make their own choices. Well, it's easy to say when you're living in a nice community and you have all the support. To say that about another community, it doesn't have that. So a lot of people say that, and I, I think it's very unfair. So I think that, you know, that, that was another important part of our conversation tonight, that, you know, that fairness needs to change where kids have more opportunity. And I'm not sure if it's the funding or what it might be, because sometimes when, when, you, when communities receive money, it never goes where it needs to go. I think it's really about training, proper training with teachers so that they're giving the right education to what the kids need so they can be guided the right way. I also feel that when we talked about the fact that college is really not the priority, I, I don't push my kids to think about it. College is something where my kids want my kids to go to if it's going to help them in their career. But if they don't need it, I wouldn't push for it. So I feel that that's, you know, especially if the child's going to go into $200,000, $300,000 in debt, it's a horrible start for a child. So that, that whole thing makes no sense to me. So there's a lot of information tonight, and it was great to be on the show. Facebook.